I was informed about it on the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And like I said, had, hadn't been told that I, I mean, knew that I was pregnant for about a week. And then for two months, probably, um, it was just this synchronicity of Our Lady of Guadalupe intersecting with feminism everywhere I looked like it was just hunting me down and finding me and I it had my attention you know and so um and specifically Our Lady of Guadalupe that apparition but also just Mary in general and I had already started asking questions about what if you know one of some of these huge like parts of what we call Mariology in the Catholic Church are are really archetypes of the divine and ways that we have access to parts of God that we don't otherwise give ourselves permission to access. Hello and welcome to the Hidden World Podcast. I'm your host, Whitney Logan. And today my guest is my friend, Shannon Evans. Shannon is a mother of five, a writer in the contemplative Catholic tradition, and a bold and fiery feminist. Her new book, Rewilding Motherhood, is an exquisite exploration of the spiritual possibilities at the heart of motherhood. Today, Shannon and I talk a lot about God as mother, because, well, there simply cannot ever be enough conversations about this experience of the divine. Shannon is a visionary, a mystic, and a medicine woman. Welcome to this week's episode of The Hidden World. Okay, so um, I loved this book so much. I cried at least twice Aww. amidst, you know, reading next to a toddler watching dino trucks. So it really <laughs> pulled me in. Well, I'm so interested to hear the parts that made you cry. You know what? I'll tell you. The first one was when you described praying the rosary and finding yourself accidentally changing the words to, yeah. um, pray for us women. Uh-huh. I wept. Oh, that makes me really happy because I wasn't sure if that story really worked or if it came across. So yay. I'm really glad to hear that. Well, and it's, I was going to say it's timely, but really it's timeless. And, you know, I, I mean to be gender affirming in all of my pronouns and descriptions of gender identities, but I think that, you know, female bodied people have been abused and tormented and marginalized and oppressed forever. Mm -hmm. And um, that really meant a lot to me to hear that, that, um, you know, hail Mary, full of grace, and, and to land and, and pray for us women. It felt like a companion in an image of God that I actually don't have easy access to. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So that made me cry. And then the second thing was um, when you were describing changing a dirty diaper 
around Easter and thinking about taking care of bodies, both, you know, new bodies with blowout poops <laughs> and then decaying bodies as they get ready for the grave. And this being um, a way of, of communion with God, of, of God with us as um, like a holy sacred portal that is unique culturally and socially and biologically to either women or, or female bodied folks. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> but I, I actually kind of wanted to start this conversation by the book is about motherhood. And it's also, to me, it felt like really about the God, our mother, you know, mother God, the, the feminine face of God. And um, I want to know your history with, um, I suppose I want to call it almost like that breakthrough because yeah. it's extraordinary in a Protestant or a Catholic tradition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're seeing it starting to rise, you know, across different traditions and spiritualities. And that's really exciting to see. So I feel like a small part of like a rising tide, you know? Um, but yeah, that it, it was a turning point for me about three years ago when um, something happened with a ministry that I wrote for professionally and basically was my voice was silenced by a male authority and it, this was a women's ministry um, and he was not directly involved with it as he should not have been and anyways but it happened um, ultimately the people who ran it did feel like he was an authority over them. And so they had to make the decision that they didn't even want to make to cut something, um, a project that I had done for them. And it was, it was, it on paper, it doesn't seem life-changing, but it just snapped something awake in me that I had really repressed of like, I think my spiritual journey has just been so winding. Like you said, like I grew up moderate Baptist um, with parents who were devout, but not evangelical, um, very focused on like mercy and justice. And then I kind of went super evangelical charismatic in college and after, and then kind of came the Catholic church kind of felt like something new, but also kind of returning somehow to um, where I had started in, as far as um, what was emphasized, I think, um, a lot of like how you live, not necessarily like specific beliefs. And yeah, so I think I, in order to find a home somewhere, I had, I had let myself be okay with things that really weren't okay with me. And I had kind of um, made excuses for them or explained them away or just said, you know, I think that things will change in the future. Um, and I am talking specifically about like official Catholic teaching, but also just within Christianity as a tradition in and of itself. Um, so this happened and it was just like, at oh, at the same time, like a week before this happened, I had found out that I was pregnant and it was a surprise. It was not planned. 
It was not sought after, but I just knew in every fiber of my being that it was a girl. And I have four boys. Um, and I have hoped that different pregnancies would be girls. In the end, I'm cuckoo about my boys. I love my boys so much. So this is, you know, um, but I have never been so sure about, you know, a sex of a baby. And, and so when this happened, I was informed about it on the feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. And like I said, had, had been told that I, I mean, knew that I was pregnant for about a week. Um, and then for two months, probably, um, it was just this synchronicity of Our Lady of Guadalupe intersecting with feminism everywhere I looked like it was just hunting me down and finding me and I it had my attention you know and so um and specifically Our Lady of Guadalupe that apparition but also just Mary in general and I had already started asking questions about like to myself um in prayer about essentially like what if you know one of some of these huge like parts of what we call Mariology in the Catholic Church are are really archetypes of the divine and ways that we have access to parts of God that we don't otherwise give ourselves permission to access. And so it kind of had already become really intriguing to me. So when this happened and it was like every left and right I looked, she was there. I the day I was able to find out early. I found out at 12 weeks um, with a genetic test because I was 36 that the baby was a girl. And I like dropped to my knees and just wept and wept and wept because it was so much more about more than having a daughter. It was about this, this, uh, this like knowing, I was going to say feeling, but it wasn't even a feeling like this, this certain inner knowing that what I'm onto is true and that whoever, whatever God is, this mystery is trying to like send me a high five and tell me I'm on the right track, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and also it made it, it just felt, I was, I was coming out of really years of feeling hungry for a more intimate relationship with God that I had experienced in the past, but I had outgrown those formats. And so I was really kind of stuck with, you know, asking a lot of questions like, maybe I'm just agnostic. Like I believe God is, but like, what if God is just the love that holds everything together, but it's not really about me personally, you know? And that was really where I was stuck and I was really sad about it, but I couldn't really move past it of like my, my, I think my my faith had expanded so much that it, it was beautiful, but it no longer felt so intimate and personal. And so when that happened and when it was, you know, they told me that she was a girl, that was, it was like, that's it. I know, like, I know it's personal. I don't understand how that works, <laughs> um, but I know it's personal and I know there is a divine feminine and I want to keep going down this road. Um, so yeah, that's, you know, I'm still, I'm still definitely on the journey and I'm still like, um, I still can't even use the word goddess and like feel normal about it because it's so out of my uh, vocabulary. <laughs> um, so there are still things like that that I find myself uncomfortable with and like, like, oh, hmm, 
I don't know what I think about that yet, you know? Um, so I can really sympathize with people who are even newer on the journey. And I just really have, um, I have a lot of desire to kind of gently and safely lead people in that direction where it feels scary. And um, I hope this book does that. Yeah. I, I think it does that. I mean, I'm not afraid of the experience or idea of the divine feminine. So, you know, sure. I get knocked me upside the head or yes, right, right. You know, undid my um, system of belief. But, um, but I would say that Mary as a concept is still um, quite a mystery to me. Though I will say also the last maybe line or two of, of the book um, made me cry as well. And it was um, it was the end of Clarissa Pinkola Estes quote, and then your little follow-up, which is um, which she says, Holy Mother is not meant to be a fence. Holy Mother is a gate. And then you said, my prayer for you, dear reader, is this. I'm going to cry. <laughs> May Holy Mother be the pearly gate through which you walk into heaven right here on earth. And so, again, I don't know who your average reader is, but it did feel like this book just, you just opened a beautiful gate. And it wasn't, um, it didn't feel at all scary to me. It felt Oh, personal in a way that I too have really craved um, from my own faith. I think that the um, consequences of a very, very personal evangelical faith were ultimately, I felt like very severe. Yeah. And I have probably overcorrected. <laughs> And um, like you, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself agnostic, but in an effort to do the opposite of what I did in college, <laughs> it has felt very important to me to stick with like not knowing. Mm -hmm. And yet not knowing does make a personal relationship with some kind of, you know, image and experience and encounter with divine feel a little trickier to access. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and this was so personal. It was so beautifully tender and personal. Um, and it, it actually, it did something for me as, as far as Sue Monk Kidd's book, Dance of the Dissident Daughter, was one of the first books I had read since leaving the evangelical church where I went, oh, oh, I, I, could, I could walk a faith path again and I could find it wherever it finds me. And then this book was for me the second one where I thought, oh my God, I could, I could walk a really personal faith experience with the Holy Mother. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I'm, that's so, 
humbling and incredible to hear. I'm that book is one of my favorite books of all time. And and I also read that during the season that I was describing earlier. It was very, mm-hmm. yeah, it was um that and Untied a Strong Woman. Mm-hmm. I, I literally slept with those books some nights. Like I was so <laughs> desperate for, you know, um for what was happening inside of me. Um but yeah, yeah. Tell me, tell me more about, um, so after you found out your daughter's sex, tell me more about what you did next, how you, you know, I, I hear you saying that these images of, um, Mary, but specifically our lady of Guadalupe, right. Mm -hmm. were finding you. Once you had that moment where you fell to your knees and you were crying, what did you do next? How did you move toward, you know, what was moving toward you? Yeah, um, I actually, I actually walked upstairs um, to my bedroom, and I have this, um, I have this art piece by my friend who I reference in the book, who lives across the street from me. And she's not Catholic and doesn't necessarily have devotion to Mary. I think just one time she just made this, this art piece of Mary and it's, it's a, she doesn't have a face. It's like her torso and her arms extending um, towards you. And, and I love that because it, it's kind of a nod to the mystery of it all. Um, Anyway, so I I went upstairs and I put my hand on that and I just said, thank you. Um, because it just felt like it was straight from from her, from the the divine mother, Mary, whatever that distinction or mystery is. I don't pretend to know it all, but um, yeah. Well, and then I called my sister, <laughs> of course, and like like we cried together because we were so happy. But um, yeah, that was what I did immediately after. And then, did you mean immediately, or did you mean? I meant both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it, I actually had the incredible fortune of part of, part of this, all the synchronicity and stuff. I, I ended up going on this retreat in Phoenix with these incredibly wise and attuned women. And it was like a group of 12 of us. I didn't know anybody, but I had like, basically they, they had posted about it. I, I, like knew one of the leaders as an acquaintance. And as she's promoting this retreat, that was gonna be, you know, in February, um, this was in December. She posted during this time, she posted a picture of Our Lady of Guadalupe. She's not Catholic, none of them are Catholic. And then, and she wrote <laughs> a quote from Suma Kid as the caption. And this was like on Instagram. And I was like, I think I'm supposed to go to your retreat. <laughs> And she even like gave me a scholarship and everything. It was amazing. But like, yeah, the retreat itself was like two, two of the women there I had connections to from um, the former missions organization that we had been with when we were evangelical. I had never met them before, but we had this connection. Um, there were like several, like maybe three 
three women, two, two women who were married, three in all who were queer and just having them represented and just bringing their experience was, I learned so much honestly about the expansiveness of God and like how, how that road has looked on their journey. Um, that was really beautiful. And then, yeah, like, and then the one leader who had posted that is now like one of my best friends. And anyway, it was just this really for all of us, this unexpectedly intimate and holy time. Um, and so that was just, that was such a gift to have a set apart way to acknowledge what was happening in my life. And like, in retrospect, I'm like, I'm so glad that that lined up because now I'm like, oh yeah, I needed a way to to get out of my life and, and process what was happening. Cause this is like a lot of intense change going on. Um, but it wasn't even, I didn't necessarily intentionally do that. I just, I just kind of said yes um, to what seemed like an important invitation. And yeah, so that was really, um, that was really incredible to, to have that chance to kind of remove myself from the demands of my everyday life and, and be willing to say yes and go deeper to whatever invitation was being extended to me. This is making me think about um, how critical it may be to step outside of, um, like almost step off the conveyor belt that just moves underneath us, which is a very, I think, masculine mode of operating. Um, we have a society organized around, um, and when I say masculine, I mean like yang, yang, soul, yeah. um, ideas of like productivity and achievement. Um, and what can happen in this space where you step outside of that, um, and gather and how that used to be a part of the rhythm of every menstruating woman's life. Um, because a lot of my most intimate, deeply embodied spiritual transformations have occurred in, you know, week-long silent immersions or yeah. non-dual embodiment trainings or um, like when I was trying to get pregnant with my first, um, I happened to be on this, um, training retreat for therapists um, with this woman named Judith Blackstone. Um, she teaches this process called the realization process. And um, at some point on this retreat, which is in upstate um, New York near Woodstock, I had mentioned to some of the women and they were all older than me. They were all like in their late fifties, sixties um, that my husband and I, I had been trying to get pregnant for a while. And one of them said, um, why don't you meet us in the temple? There was like a Buddhist temple in the place we were staying after dinner tonight and we'll have a little ceremony. And I went in there and they sang songs to me and laid me down and like brushed my hair and put oil on my feet and my hands and my head and said blessings and then like braided my hair and then all held me. Wow. And I was just like, what? in the world how is this not a part of every single person's initiation into yeah becoming a mother 
Oh man. I feel that so strongly. I feel so starved for that kind of nurture from other women. When we, when we were missionaries, when we lived in Indonesia, um, care like that was much more normal and much more um, accessible and much less stigmatized as something really eccentric and weird. Um, like you did not have to have money to, to have a connection to someone, who, a woman who did massages and, and it would be often, you know, they had different ones. Well, I will say um, my friend, my Indonesian friend thought that I was infertile because we didn't have children yet. And so <laughs> she, she asked that her, her masseuse friend to like give me the special <laughs> infertility massage. It was very kind of her, but we just hadn't talked that through um, because that's just not waiting is not part of their culture. And so, um, so yeah, I just, I got that firsthand, but then it, it not necessarily because of that, but pretty soon and during our time there, I got really depressed and seemingly unconnected to that depression, <laughs> but now it makes total sense. I, I scheduled a line item in our budget for me to get touched by women. So like get massages, get my, they have like this uh, thing called a cream bath where they basically, they wash your hair and it's really amazing and lovely. Mm -hmm. And it's just like this really calming experience. So, you know, one of those things, a pedicure maybe, but something where I'm getting nurtured by other women. And I think about that all the time of, of how, how I needed that. And, and honestly, like you're saying, I, I think it actually there was a lot going on. A lot was breaking down on me, um, within me at that time. It did feel like a, a, almost an initiation that was extended and I didn't really realize what was happening. Um, but it made me long for that and see, see the need for that and, and to honor that. And I'm, I'm so committed to, to doing that for my daughter. Um, but I want to know, I want more ways to do it for myself too, you know? Mm -hmm. um yeah, yeah anyways I love that and for other women it's um yeah. you know something that I have experienced and observed as an American Midwestern woman um I you know white and um I suppose middle upper middle class that there's oftentimes a lot of competition between women, um, in which feels very to me like um, <sighs> grievous because I think when you've experienced this other way of being with women and how holy that feels, it, it feels like an absence of God in that competitive space. Yeah. Like just, I feel aggrieved. Um, the distance feels uh, profoundly sad. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think a lot of us feel that and, and can only really verbalize it as a longing for friendship or a loneliness 
you know, and those things are true. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's not, when, when we frame it that way, it feels like a problem that I have as an individual, that I just don't have anyone around me that I can connect with, that I feel close to, um, or I don't have a, a way of making friends in this season of life or, or whatever reason feels true. But I think like what you're saying is like when we, when we zoom out a little bit and see it as more of, of a systemic issue, and really, like you said, I mean, we are meant to kind of ha have that time at, at regular intervals, you know, um, during menstruation, during, you know, trying to conceive or during pregnancy, right after birth, like during menopause, when you get your first period, you know, menses, um, there are so many times in a woman's life when historically we did gather around each other and and extend nurture and care and solidarity. And now we don't do that at any of those times. I mean, maybe after birth, you know, um, but not in a way that we really need. Not, and I think that's probably more rare than is the norm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, everybody brings meals by and wants to see the baby. But what I always desperately needed was somebody to come into my intimate chaos you know not for me to have to like get dressed and welcome them in and let them hold the baby and thank them for yeah. the food <laughs> but right somebody to come into like the gnarly intimacy of that period and not just hold the baby but like really hold me yeah like you know make me laugh tell me that there is another side to yeah. get to right. wash some laundry, make a joke about how the bathroom looks like a murder scene. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, really? yes, totally. And, and for me, the only, you know, the only people who were able to do that were women who had somewhat recently given birth themselves. And I look back before I gave birth, um, how little support I gave the women in my life who had given birth because it is not part of our culture. Like it is not in our awareness. And even women who, you know, birthed their children decades ago seem to have kind of forgotten what it's like and what they need because the culture has sort of erased all of that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's something that I would like to see remedied and I don't know what else to do besides just, you know, the cliche, be the change you want to see in the world, but, or write books about it. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think your book might help <laughs> or at least help the people that it lands with, you know? Yeah. Okay. I want, I want to talk more about um, the way connecting to the Holy Mother, the Divine Mother has transformed your relationship with your personal experience of mothering? Yeah, um, it'll come as no surprise since you've read this book, but it has really opened up um, permission to trust myself and to be honest with myself. Um, and those are 
things that were not very active in my consciousness for a long, long time. Um, I'm an Enneagram nine, so I'm very, you know, I can just repress till the cows come home, you know, <laughs> just shove it all down um, until it like, you know, explodes. But yeah, I, that has been, um, and I, you know, I think that the theme runs through the book because it, it is so freshly running through me of like, and I believe that women, almost every woman I, woman I know struggles to do that, to, to be fully honest with herself and then to trust what she hears from herself, you know? Um, so that has, that has changed on a practical level what motherhood looks like for me um, because I went from, you know, being a stay-at-home mom who would get two or three hour chunks um, of childcare to write on the side and I did that for years, and um, but still felt uh, like suffocated and depleted. And um, I'm someone who always dreamed of being a mother. Like when I was 12, I was like thinking of baby names for my kids. Like I, you know, um, at one point I wanted 10 of them. <laughs> I made it halfway there before I threw in the towel. <laughs> but, but, you know, so, I think to come to, to terms with the truth that being with them 24 seven is not, is not for me. It's not working for me, you know? Um, and I don't know that it, I didn't experience it as a societal pressure or even a religious pressure. Maybe at the very beginning I did, you know, with, you know, within my church. Um, but I think I just more felt stuck of like, well, how would I like, how would I afford childcare? How would I, um, you know, I've been out of the workforce force for years. How would I even be qualified for a job? Like it just felt impossible and I felt stuck and I felt um, angry about being stuck and um, pretty common experiences for women right now, especially in a pandemic, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so I think that that, admission to myself and the uh, the ability to now acknowledge those needs and feelings as legitimate and as pointers to something that needs to change. Um, my husband happened to be at a point where he was ready to leave the job that he was in. And so a year ago, we switched and I actually like, um, crafted this job description and pitched it to <laughs> um, a nonprofit organization that I had written for. And they, they brought me on, I was only contract, um, but I worked for them for a year and, and, you know, was able between that and writing the book was able to bring in a full-time salary. And my husband went to spiritual direction on the side and then became the primary caregiver and the one who cooks the meals and all of that stuff. Um, and just recently I, I got a new job that is more long-term and salaried and everything, but I wouldn't have gotten that had I not had the experience of the first job. Um, so it, it's been, it's had very practical, going back to why I'm talking about this, the exploration of the divine feminine and you know, what I kind of refer to as a, spiritual, a feminine spirituality had very real practical, you know, implications in my everyday life 
and it's not like suddenly all of my family problems have left, but I will say I am much more healthy and I am in a place where I'm able to, when I am with my children, be fully present with them, um, be delighted and not exhausted by them most of the time, not always, you know, um, gonna be honest, but, um, but yeah, just going, there's a, there's an element of feeling proud of myself for, um, for change, you know, when, when I felt really stuck for finding a way to, to change. And so in that, I think, I think agency has been, has been a, that's a pretty succinct, like umbrella word that I could give for Mm -hmm. a lot of these practical implications. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you know, you, you talk about the story of Eve and the implications of that story on the psyche of essentially Western, um, even, you know, non-religious, but most people sort of Judeo-Christian Western world. And some of what you're saying now, and and some of what you said in the book remind me that um, I do think that there's a, you know, mythic archetypal well, if, if Eve is an archetype, right? And, and maybe she is first woman, I would say first mother, right? Um, but her story gets told in a way where if, if this story of the quote unquote fall of man is in some way connected to a woman trusting herself and making a choice, it's a pretty, um, dev- it has a pretty devastating impact, I think, did for me, you know, I grew up in church and I don't think anyone explicitly said to me, I was in a pretty mainline Protestant, um, fairly progressive church. Um, so no one explicitly said to me, women shouldn't be left to their own devices, but it was sort of implied Yeah, um, I agree. that, I mean, I remember being very young wrapping my head around that story and feeling this like sinking, horrible feeling in my body and just thinking, I can't, I can't trust myself. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't trust myself. Right. Also wanting things is bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such a confusing story. I mean, I, I feel, I feel, I've got a lot of mixed emotions about it, but, but especially being introduced to it as a child without the benefit of historical context, without the benefit of like mythological study, anything, you know, it is like, okay, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're not supposed to to know things or you know I just remember very being very confused about like what what is wrong with knowledge I don't understand you know yeah actually I um recorded an an episode of this podcast with your dad last fall oh yeah and we talked about this story for a while and the audio quality on his end was so bad oh no (laughs) 
that my I should have come over and helped <laughs> But um we talked about this story for a while and um and it it is a confusing story. It kind of reminds me that a lot of this stuff didn't get taught to people until they were pubescent. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not sure how that would have helped that much, but uh, it was in my 27, 28 year old um, fully developed prefrontal cortex brain that I, I think I started to really think about that story symbolically, not to undermine it, but because I understood that this is how it would have been related to by the people who first told it. Right. Um, to your point about historical context. Yeah. And then it took on a really different tone for me, um, including and I, I'd be willing to argue this um, to the grave. And even if I'm wrong, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, what if it's a story about the evolution in human consciousness, hmm. this, this movement out of instinctual unitive bliss, animal instinctual consciousness into uh, the reflective consciousness that's available when you have a forebrain. And you can, you can distinguish between good and evil, but it does make you feel separate. Mm. And there are consequences to that. There's a, um, an awareness of your own sort of self-conscious, naked, shameful aspects of, of what you're up to. Yeah. And also baby's heads got bigger, so it hurts to give birth. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah that's I yeah I just I think it's fascinating I really I really love learning my husband recently took a a class on the book of Mark and a lot of the things that he was telling me about it are kind of similar of of ways that the audience then would have understood some of Jesus's parables, um, some of even his actions um, that, that we're totally oblivious to right now, um, so far removed from that time and culture. And I just find that when I'm presented with, with information like that, or like with the, the story that you're talking about, or the way of looking at the creation story, you know, for a long time, my first response was sort of, Nope, I don't, I don't want to hear that. Don't challenge my, you know, like literal interpretation or whatever. Um, and that's like a stage that's a fair human stage, you know, we, we go through it. But then for me, it's been really important to get comfortable with having my very myopic worldview challenged because the world is so much bigger than just me. And so it's, it's actually made me more interested in engaging with scripture again. Um, where for a long time I like couldn't because it felt kind of painful because I'm like um, there are so many things that I was taught about it that I now see are not true and so it, it almost kind of represented to me and in some ways Jesus 
felt like this too, of like it represented this thing that had let me down, mm -hmm. uh, this thing that I, um, I thought that I could trust, but I couldn't. And so I didn't know how to engage with it. So slowly I'm able to kind of re-engage with scripture, um, but it really helps to have those kinds of perspective that can kind of paint a broader picture of it for me. Anyways, I'm glad you 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 told a, your side of what you're going to take to the grave <laughs> about the creation story because I it's fascinating. I yeah, I haven't heard it said exactly that way. Yeah, well, actually, your I think I emailed your dad. God bless him. You know, he was he my it. he was yeah. my professor for three semesters in college, and just continued to let me email him. <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> But I remember one time I emailed him, you know, and said, I need to know what the actual Hebrew word is that gets translated as crafty when mm -hmm. um, Genesis talks about the serpent or the snake. Yeah. And he, some, like maybe a day later, it wasn't long, he wrote back and he said, I think the best word here is subtle. Ooh, and, and, and so I thought so much about, and you talk about this in your book, um, the snake, the serpent being a, a symbol for feminine knowing and feminine um, spirituality, these cycles of life, death, and rebirth that the snake moves through when it sheds its skin and, and gets new skin and the uterus does yeah. once a month. Uh, and, and again, thought a lot about the the symbolic way ancient Semitic people would have explored things that were really bewildering and mysterious mm -hmm. to them. And, and I don't really have a conclusion, but it, it made me think that that story had more to it than what I'd been handed. Yeah. And that maybe I actually didn't need to not trust myself. Right. And if only I had had these images of a divine feminine, you know, of a, um, that might have been more accessible earlier too, mm -hmm. which yeah. I think is a remarkable thing that you highlight over and over again in a way that needs to be highlighted over and over again. Yeah. And, and Sue Monk's, Monk Kids, book did that too yeah I think it might have been her book that introduced me to that I to that not just idea but that truth of you know in ancient times that was you know goddesses were frequently pictured with serpents you know it, it was very very well understood very commonly understood that it was a, a feminine symbol um and and the way that she explored that in the book really got me interested in it and I had I had um two dreams within like a week of each other that had to do that, that featured snakes in the dream and um one was one was kind of scary and threatening and invasive and violating and then the next one was very restorative and um peaceful and integrated I would say. And so it, it was such an interesting, I, I talked about it pretty extensively with my spiritual director because it was such an interesting like picture of what was going on, you know, during that time. And, um, but I, so yeah, I just think, but I think 
had I not been aware that that's what snakes kind of represent, um, and had I not had that in my own consciousness, dreaming about snakes would have just been like horrifying and like a nightmare or, you know, whatever. Um, I would have not wanted to explore it. And so even you know, the more you know, the more you grow is, is the deal, right? Um, it's, yeah, we just kind of being open to things that feel foreign or feel even threatening to our current belief system or current understanding of God or our faith can really, can really serve to benefit from it if we don't, if we don't yeah. like it off immediately. Yeah. yeah and, um, if you had tried to have a conversation with me about God the mother or um, God is beyond gender when I was an adolescent, I, I would have felt very threatened by that. Um, what I think you articulate so powerfully in your book is that feeling threat, I think feeling threatened by that is like a symptom of the problem yeah we're we're keeping a whole aspect of god and ourselves at a distance that creates a lot of psychological and spiritual alienation yes absolutely um because you know we all to i mean you know this much more than me as, as you've studied, you know, um, Jung, but like we all kind of, how we see God and how we see ourselves is so mixed together, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so if we are, if we are unwilling, you know, I think, I think most of us were like, well, God is neither male nor female, but spirit. Um, but God has been revealed to us as father and as he, so that's what we stick with. You know, I, I hear that a lot when I bring up this conversation and, you know, I, a, I think we have to ask questions about why mm -hmm. father and he have, have been the ways that humanity has, has understood God. Um, but, but B, I think, you know, when we, if we acknowledge that, that God is beyond gender, but we're only willing to explore part of what that means, then we are missing at least half, if not more, of the divine mystery, right? Of what God is, of, of who God is, of how God moves in our life. And then that also means that we are unwilling to look at, or we devalue a big part of ourselves. And that's true for women and men you know, because we all have those masculine and feminine parts. And I think that's what we see, um, you know, to be so toxic about patriarchy for men is that they are not allowed to engage this feminine part of themselves. Mm -hmm. And they suffer in very specific ways for that, just like women do um, in different but equally specific ways. So it's just like, Ah, can't we all just <laughs> move towards wholeness here, you know, move yeah. towards some integration. Um, it's important for everybody. Oh yeah. Do you know who James Hollis is? No. He's a Jungian analyst and like prolific writer. I don't know how many books he's written, maybe 45, you know, oh, wow. I mean, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but 
he, and I think he's probably 80 something now and still teaches. And I mean, he's got a lot of energy. Um, and he wrote this book called Under Saturn's Shadow. And I think he wrote it in the 90s. I could have that wrong, but it's a couple decades old at least. And um, he talks about masculine psychology in this book. And one of the things that he, he says is um, when, when it is required of men to be successful and um, appropriate in the in the culture, in the society to split off, you know, what has been deemed feminine. Mm-hmm. Then you have men who are not allowed to ever, 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 ever tell anyone, including themselves, the truth of what they're feeling. Mm. Yeah. And so there is no intimacy, not interpersonally and not intrapersonally and the symptoms of that the consequences of that are so profound they are mass shootings in right. elementary schools etc yeah 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 so i am on board for can't we all just please <laughs> move toward wholeness yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah yeah totally yeah So you also talk in your book, which I think is um, really gorgeous about, um, you know, tending to the tasks or the, um, I think you call them domestic, but, you know, caretaking, tending to the domestic universe as a way of, of practicing uh, communion with God, of being in lockstep with God. And this was like medicine to me because I am, I know, I know this in my head and I am deeply resistant. <laughs> me too. <laughs> That's why I had to write it for myself. <laughs> um, and, and I think my best days um, are the days when I can remember that it's a spiritual task rather than almost like this kind of, you know, in um, the movie, The Little Mermaid, the little sea urchins on the bottom of the floor. Yeah. That's how I feel about the demand. (laughs) 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 To think of drawing toward those things lovingly, (laughs) (laughs) trying to alleviate their suffering helps me with the, you know, endless demands of my children and also of the home that we share and, and existing right. together. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a work in progress for me. I mean, I've, it's something that, um, that when people ask me the hardest, the hardest part about writing the book, that's the chapter that I say is because it was like, I didn't want to be a liar, you know, like I didn't want to be writing something that I'm not living or that I, you know, like haven't, haven't embodied or internalized. Um, but I was writing it to myself to, to remind myself of what is true. And actually my, um, are you familiar with the Catholic worker mm-hmm. movement? Okay. So my friends who are a part of the Catholic worker movement 
um, for any listeners that aren't familiar, it was founded by Dorothy Day in New York City, but now there's there's places you know all over the world really, but especially in the United States, and um, it's very radical and it's very um, off the grid anarchist like um, social justice for sure. Um, but many of my Catholic worker friends dumpster dive for their food. They don't purchase food. Um, they don't purchase clothes. They, you know, they'll, they'll get it out of donation bins or whatever. So, I mean, it's a very extreme way of life that I have a lot of respect for, mm -hmm. um, but that I don't personally live, but by having these friendships, um, they really have taught me to honor manual labor and homemaking as, um, as, a radical act of care um, as like a radical statement against consumerism and against capitalism and against greed. Um, and so I think about that a lot, you know, when I'm doing kind of the care of my home or the care of my children and trying to come back to the space of not only is ritual like clearly very important and healthy for the human psyche, but we've always done it. We've always created ritual and, and homemaking is one, one form of that. Um, but also creating a space, a, a, a sense of place, no matter you know if you're on a farm or if you're in the suburbs, but cre creating and tending to a place I think is a spiritual discipline that that teaches us what it means to belong somewhere, um, to belong to other people, how to live in community with other people, um, but how to belong to a certain place on the earth. You know, no matter what that looks like—a high-rise in New York City, or you know, my nasty, you know, weed-ridden yard here in the Midwest. But um, I, I think that there is something revolutionary about that. And I think I'm just starting to scratch the surface, but it is really hard, admittedly, when you're in a season of caring for young children, because it, it is harder, I think, to find, those, to find those moments of deep meaning and purpose and clarity, um, because the need is so constant and it is so much, and um, it can be really overwhelming. So I wanted to include the chapter to just kind of offer some space to meditate on those things and to, and to kind of clear our heads and kind of renew our vision for it. You did that. It was very inspiring to me. Oh, good. It really like turned my bad mood around <laughs> that good. day. That day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think it's a big part of most contemplative traditions. I mean, I spent... Um, seven years kind of flirting at the edges of different Buddhist traditions. Yeah. Um, and I didn't ever feel like I could take precepts and become a Buddhist because like in my bones and lineage and psyche, I, I'm Christian, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but I remember um, I went to this uh, Zen Buddhist temple um, on New Year's Eve one night and it was snowing. This was in Chicago. And um, there, one of the 
resident monks was outside and shoveling the snow, salting the walk, shoveling again, salting the walk. And I could see it on the whole walk down the street to the temple um, because the snow was like really coming down. And so he just kept at it. And I was there with a friend and this friend, when we got up, said uh, to him, he said, well, this seems to be an ongoing problem. And the man paused, looked up and he said, like very gently, he said, well, it's ongoing, but I wouldn't call it a problem. Hmm. And I was like, ah, that's why you bother to do this manual labor, chores, work. It's because it, it's almost like it, all that instant gratification, you know, um, like egoic desire for pleasure and comfort, that stuff has to get burned away a bit if you are going to really cho choose this kind of life or practice and choose to be honoring yeah. of the daily work and the daily ritual of it. I personally do not have this cultivated in me. <laughs> But I'm inspired every time someone does invite me in like you did. It's mm, really good. Thank you. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot when I'm like <laughs> cleaning up after my children, you know, well, it is ongoing, but it's not a problem. That's <laughs> going to be my new MO. <laughs> I would like to tell you that man's name so you could credit him, but I don't know it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Tell me about Julian of Norwich. She is, she's fascinating. Um, so I started, I started reading her because writers that I admired, contemporary writers that I admired and respected women kept referencing her. So I was like, okay, I need to go straight to the horse's mouth and actually read her work. Um, so I, yeah, this was a couple of years ago, I guess. And I um, was so delighted with what I found. I so she, this, her book, um, Revelations of Divine Love or Revelations of Love, however it's translated, um, is, is a record of her visions of Jesus that she had. Um, she calls them showings. And they are so ahead of their time. It was the first book written by a woman in the English language. And I mean, she, she talks about God as mother extensively. Um, specifically Jesus as mother. And so that's really fun because there's like, there's just this gender non-conformity, you know, cause she's just talking about Jesus giving birth to us, Christ, our mother. Um, it's just this, this totally like unself-conscious, like um, offering that was really brave in its time for her to do that. I mean, she could have been killed for what she said. Um, and she's actually, a lot of people don't know this. She's actually technically not a saint. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes she is referred to as Saint Julian of Norwich, but she's not a saint. And my personal hunch is that because it's because some of the stuff she says is so revolutionary. I think the Catholic church is like, oh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna push that yet. Um, <laughs> but I think maybe one day, one day it'll happen. Um, but yeah, and she also she also wrote really surprisingly about sin, and um, in in a way that you know in in my book I draw parallels to to the Buddhist tradition, which is sort of like 
sin is not almost as the I think what she says is sin is is no thing she saw that sin is no thing it's basically what we do with it but like it's gone it's out there into the world so you know it's we can trust the wholeness of the divine we can trust our choices you know if we're continually seeking um oneness with God if we're coming back like we can trust that every every time we've fallen short or missed the mark, you know, as sin literally means, like, it's, it's going to find its way, you know, it's going to find its way. And not that there's not consequences, because there are obviously, and it's real in people's lives. So I, you know, I don't think that she was minimizing that. But I think it's, it's a really bold statement for a Christian woman to be like, I'm not that concerned about sin. <laughs> I mean, in the 15th century and today, it still is, you know, like it's, um, it's yeah, like, what if we let that go? Yeah, because it is, it is an attitude of wholeness to be not that concerned about sin. Um, I, I think it's why I'm so attracted to Jung and the Jungians mm-hmm. because it's very like, like, okay, you lied. Okay. Well, why? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, well, because I yada, yada, yada. Well, yeah, you wanted to belong. What's wrong with belonging? Nothing. Why do you feel like you have to lie to belong to these people? Oh, okay. Now, now yes. Now we're, back, we're returning back to center. It's like yes. that kind of relationship with missing the mark to me yes. feels like, you know, the, the spiritual task of being a person. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The asking questions about, you know, our errors or our emotions or the ways that we, I, you know, I wrote, I wrote a chapter on anger because I think almost every mom I know feels guilty about getting angry with her kids or like wishes that she, you know, thinks she has an anger problem or wishes she wasn't so angry. There are some exceptions, but I think most of us kind of relate to that. Um, I certainly do. And it's like, yeah, it's like, okay, just like you said, okay, so you got angry. Why? Like, okay, you feel suffocated. Well, what do you, what do you want to do about that? You know, like, let's, let's keep going and not just stop. And I think that sometimes um, that can be almost like a cop-out by, by calling it sin. Cause like, Oh, I'll just repent of it. Um, and then, and then it's over, but I haven't actually addressed it, you know? So it's like, I, I have to be asking questions so that something can change so that I'm not just stuck in the same spiral over and over. Mm-hmm. I remember a couple of years ago when, um, the report from Pennsylvania came about the, um, clergy abuse, of, um, of minors in the state of Pennsylvania. And it, you know, it was from decades before, but, but it came out and it just shook the Catholic church and, you know, all of society. This was 2018, maybe 2017. Um, and, you know, I heard, I heard one priest say like, we just need, we need holiness in the priesthood. So like, what can you do? You can pray for holiness. And I'm like, I don't think that's gonna get us anywhere. Like, that's not, that's just like, 
you know, it's using sin as a scapegoat and not, and not being willing to look at mm -hmm. the, the underlying issues and asking why, 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 why. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, just like, I want that happening in, in that huge situation. I also want that happening in my own life of like, well, it's not enough to just label it as sin and say, I just need to be more holy. Like <laughs> I've got to, I've got to be asking why the sin is happening or why, um, I'm missing the mark and what I know to be the, the way of, um, goodness and holiness. And anyway, it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a good. It's a good rabbit trail to go down. <laughs> that example with the priests, um, and the clergy abuse of, of minors, I was attending uh, some sort of presentation at the Young Institute years and years and years ago um, in Chicago. And there was a former priest and a former nun who had left the Catholic church to become Episcopalian so they could marry each other. They like- Oh yeah, I think yeah. I know them. <laughs> the Lavins? Yes, I don't know them personally, but I've heard of them. Okay. Yeah. Tom and Mary Ellen or Tom and Ellen, I forget. Um, and they were talking about this. It wasn't the topic of the presentation, but it came up. And um, one of them said, well, you know, in some way, this is the consequence of demanding that we split off sexuality. Yeah. So if you can't let something in the front door of consciousness, it will come in the back door and possess you in ways you'll never admit. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and so they had, they had been in this universe. It wasn't like they were speaking from the outside and right. condemning something they didn't understand. There was this really intimate understanding, I thought of, mm -hmm. of the problem there. Like, yeah, it's to, to make, sexuality unholy it becomes unholy yes absolutely that's so true and you know I mean I know that they would say oh no sexuality is not unholy but but what is communicated mm -hmm. is that it is um yeah during that time I heard um I heard a homily by father Richard Rohr who said something really similar and I really appreciated coming from a celibate man who's saying like you know, very few people are, are meant to live celibate lives. And um, it's, yeah, basically the same thing. If, if you don't let something come in the front door, it'll come through the back door. I think he actually used that exact same metaphor. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Here's my final question, which I ask everyone, which is, um, what is one thing you wish everyone knew? I knew you were going to ask me this because I've listened to several of your episodes and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say. I mean, I, I think, I, I think probably what comes to mind is I would want people to know that they can trust themselves. Yeah. And that, but I, I, it's hard not to qualify that with, but you also have to do the work so that you know what you're trusting, you know? Yes. Which I think is important. Yeah. Yes. It's not like just trust the language your complexes speak to you. Yes. Yeah. That's a succinct way to put it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you have to be able to do that kind of, um, you know, loosening and teasing apart 
what what is the self anchored in the divine mystery and and what is all the adaptations and reactions to trauma yeah exactly yeah and then you can trust that that yeah yeah, yeah. that's good and you learned this from embracing the god as mother god yeah. as feminine yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it's amazing and it's so beautiful. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you for having me on. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, so fun. Thank you to my friend Shannon for giving us an hour of her time and for helping me expand and enliven the way that I relate to my own spirituality. The Hidden World is edited and produced by David Gomez. Our theme song is written and recorded by David Gomez, and I'm your host, Whitney Logan. Be good to yourselves and each other.